eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, back here at the NBC Sports Charlotte Studios, where I am joined by our Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin, whatever recurring Saturday Night Live guest you want to throw out there. Steve Wittart is that for the NASCAR NBC Podcast. This has got to be, what, appearance number six or seven? I think six, but I'm starting to take it personal that we always do it in studio. Like, we don't go anywhere fun. You, I, I, <laughs> I listened to all the other one. Matt Kenseth was from his bus. Steve Letart is back in NBC Studios. Like, they don't let me go out. We never do one on the road. We never do one at the track. I don't take it personal. It's fine. We had plans to do this at Steve's bus in Daytona. But unfortunately, best laid plans. Bigger name on the other line, folks. <laughs> no, no. We were going to do it that day. But, well, yeah, I did tape with a big name who's coming up next See? week. See? I told you. Four-time champion who Steve knows uh, very well. But yeah, I wins 90 races and he bumps me. <laughs> we were supposed to tape our own down there, and it, it didn't really happen because of time constraints. And That's all right. Now we have the 500 really we can talk about. Yeah, now we have the 500. But I, I think your live remote idea is a great one if people are interested in Maybe coming to a live podcast taping of the NASCAR and NBC podcast, we would love to get your That's feedback. What, so do that. You tweet Nate and tell him that you'll come, and we'll do one maybe at a restaurant or a racetrack in the second half of the year. It'll be a live taping. What could be better? Tweet me my, your ideas. I'm a little bit nervous about this because I'm not the real gregarious type as my friend here across the table, but he's, of course, very enthused, wants to do it. So That means outgoing, right? Yes. Let's, just uh, clearing that up. Let's plan on doing that sometime in the next couple of months. All right. But for now, let's get to the Daytona 500. You were there, and you said an, an electric. electric. It, it really atmosphere. was. So I've been to so many day from Daytona 500s, spent my you know every February of my life down there. In full disclosure, I got there Thursday morning before the 150s, and I actually left the morning of the 500. Slacker. And I thought I was a little concerned. I showed up Thursday. It, it, it just kind of felt a little mundane. It was just different. There had been no practice Wednesday. There were no cars on track. So I think the Thursday morning that I was expecting wasn't there because it, it, it was delayed a little bit. But by the time the lights came on Thursday night and the cars hit the track, the place started to feel a buzz. But by Saturday... It was full electric. The infield was crowded. You couldn't get in and out of the track easy, which is great. Um, I think they call it either one Daytona or Daytona One, whatever it's called. One across, yep. across the street, I went over there to eat. The fans were everywhere. Um, it was exactly what it felt like when I went to the Super Bowl, right? It felt like a big sporting event. It was more than just a race. It was a true event. It was refreshing to see that that uh, you know there was a day that you couldn't leave the infield, and that's what it felt like on Saturday and Sunday. There were crowds everywhere. Before we get into the dissection of the race then, you just mentioned, and I agree, I wrote this this week, before Thursday, the track was dark for three days after the duels and qualifying. I know that teams will have their objections about this, but should there be more activity Monday through Wednesday? Well, So the interesting thing is, is the track was dark, but the news cycle didn't seem to be. Mm-hmm. Like my Twitter feed was busy uh, because the drivers were available and there was a media day and things like that. So I think there's a mix. Like why? I, as a race fan, want to see cars on track every day. I think you and other media members have explained to me how important that down day is for some media time with the drivers. So I think a somewhat condensed schedule is is needed. I don't think it needs to be whatever it was this year, I guess 10 days or 11 days from check-in to the 500. I don't think it'll ever be a four-day show. 
Um, but maybe a Sunday to Sunday, a Monday to Sunday. You know, I think six or seven days you can get everything done. Can teams handle it if they're doing a few more practice sessions, if they do a couple more days, if they have another race? Um, I would, think what you need – I think the total on-track content is the right amount. I just think it's spread over too many calendar days. Okay. So if it was me, I would say maybe you check in Monday, Tuesday. You have a primetime qualifying on Wednesday, primetime 150s on Thursday, primetime clash with the trucks on Friday. That would all be – in my mind, now as a fan, I could come down Wednesday to Sunday, one trip, see it all. You know, so for my guy, let me just clarify this: for the guy that's not responsible for paying any of the bills at the racetrack, <laughs> right? Or paying any of the, too. Yeah. or paying any of the bills on a race team, right. as just a simple old fan, I think uh, that would be fun to me. A Wednesday through Sunday would be great. So getting to the race, Kyle Petty is here, and we were just talking about this before we came in the NASCAR America studio. It's almost like we could do NASCAR America today, Steve. But I'm telling you, it's coming back soon. Monday, NBCSN after Atlanta. Check out. NASCAR America. So you and Kyle were talking about the restart, the restarts really at the end of the Daytona 500 and how you had a really interesting comment because Kyle was wondering when did things change in a way that having a really good car <laughs> seems to make less of a difference. And you said double file restarts, which were instituted the first Daytona 500 with them would have been 2010. That has had a pronounced effect on this race. Yeah, it's just because in single file restarts, normally the faster cars run up front and they roll off single file. And as they go from single to double to three wide, the faster cars kind of matriculate to the front and they fill those gaps. And now with already starting side by side and the interaction of the side draft, from the word go, you can affect the car next to you. And it has changed where I feel there is more out of your control from a great car, great driver standpoint as there used to be. Back 15 or 20 years ago, if you had a great driver and a great car and had track position, you could control the tempo. Uh, I think Denny Hamlin had the best car in the top four, six, probably all the way back to Logano. Now, so I'm not a driver, so I don't know if it's something Denny did wrong or if it's just by luck that the line didn't get organized. That's what I don't know. I plan on asking Dale Jr. whenever he decides to get back from Korea. So we're going to have that conversation. But without a doubt, the lack of organization killed Denny Hamlin and Eric Almirola was gone. Shout out like a cannon. Nothing against Eric Almirola, but do I think Denny Hamlin was sitting on a faster race car? I do. I think the 11 was fast all week down there, and, and he showed that he had what it took. So I think double fire restarts has affected how that race ends as much as any race we'll see. He obviously had lane choice for that final restart as the leader, and he could have started outside in front of Austin Dillon, which ultimately proved to be the best line on the restart because Almirola like was shot out of a cannon with uh, Dylan behind him and Bubba Wallace right behind that or he could choose Denny Hamlin could choose the inside which he did which meant he was lining up in front of Chris Buescher but Hamlin said who he was most concerned about was the third row that he actually chose the inside because Paul Menard in fifth place was going to be the third car in line and he said that whoever the fifth and sixth place drivers are that determines the restart. Although in this case, obviously it didn't because Denny Hamlin said he couldn't get buy-in from Paul Menard, as you just said, Stevie, that organization is the key to it. And I guess in this case, obviously he's the lone Toyota of those top six, seven cars. It's difficult. Yeah. And I think some of it can be too premeditated. Like I like Denny. I think he's a talented race car driver, but there has to be some point where maybe you just drive your car and not try to organize the group behind you. What I've learned about race car drivers is they'll say a lot under yellow. And then when that thing turns green, it's like when a bull sees red. They really, listen, whatever they told you, it was a lie. They're going to go wherever it is best for them. And that's why we all watch. That's not a knock on them. That's why I love sports. That's why sports are the best reality TV there are because, you know, Paul Menard can say whatever he wants, but you're telling me if it opens up to go up high, he's just going, no, I'm supposed to stay down here. That's what I agree. He doesn't care. He's going to change lanes and do what he needs to do. 
I will say, though, that being a threat, either because of uh, reputation or because you showed speed all week, people think fast cars get drafting help. I think it's the opposite. So maybe in 10th they do. Put yourself in the 10th position and Joey Logano comes screaming on by. I'm like, I'm getting on that train. That train's going to the front. I'm getting on it. <laughs> but once you get to about third or fourth, if you say, hmm, am I pushing Eric Amarola to the lead and going to try to beat him? Or am I pushing Denny Hamlin to the lead? I can assure you I'm not pushing Denny Hamlin. I would take my chances to beat Eric Amarola. Nothing against Eric, but the resume, my opinion of how fast the 11 was, you know, put Dale Jr. in the race. I ain't pushing him either. Joey Logano, not pushing him. You know, I'm going to push somebody up there that I feel I can beat. And I do think that makes a difference in the closing laps. And this concept I've heard you talk about, I've heard actually TJ Majors, former spotter for Dale Jr., also has talked about this, that there is, with a really good car, there's like this bubble behind the car. If your car isn't very good, if you're getting help from the guy behind him, you almost need him to hit you. But if you have a really good car, all you need is just the car behind you to get within what, say, a car length, and then you, you shoot off. Yeah, I mean, so the idea is when a car has a run, he's going to catch you because he's going faster. But a good car will start to accelerate when that car is still maybe a car length or two or three back. The air is like a snow plow pushing the snow. It doesn't disturb the snow right in front of the plow. It disturbs the snow two, three, four feet out. It pushes like a wave. And I mean, think about this, like when those, remember when the storms came in in the Northeast and they said, man, the, the tide waters are going to come in. Well, the first thing they did is go out and they had all the, actually I think it was in Florida and they had all these pictures of dry right, bays. Right, right. And next thing you know, now the water's coming back in and it's filling everything up. Well, that's kind of how it works, right? As the car's going through there, where's that air going? It's pushing the lead car way out there away. So a good car, the guy doesn't get all the way to your bumper to hit you. He kind of gets you rolling before he gets there and gives you a better chance. And, um, I mean, that's, as a crew chief, whether it's real or not, that drivers have had me sold on it because that's, that was my goal, is to build a car that gave the driver the best chance to defend if we were fortunate enough to have the lead, as Eric Amarola did in the closing laps of the 500. Snowplow and wave analogies. I would expect nothing less from you. Those are very good. That puts it in context. But I can't help but be struck that you also said that uh, you're looking forward to talking to Dale Jr. about this. How much of what you've learned about drafting is working with a guy like him? Is, is a lot of that? Well, so I've been blessed to work with two of them. Uh, so Jeff Gordon and I won two Talladegas together, and he obviously has won a tremendous amount of restricted plate races. He talked more about handling um, and referred to it as, I want to be able to put my car in this position, and that was really Jeff's thing. He didn't ever talk about being pushed or getting runs or anything like that. He always referred to it as, you know, I'm, I don't have the confidence to do this or this or this, and when you gave him that confidence, he would make it happen. Dale Jr. then equated it to you would watch tape of practice. Him and I would sit down, and he would make a move in practice, and he said, see right there? I got to that guy's door. I should have cleared him. So our car needs to do that better. It needs to take a push. It's kind of like rolling a matchbox across the hardwood floor. You know, that one with the bent axle that your kids have been playing with. You know, you push it pretty hard, and it only slides about halfway. And then you have that really, really brand new one, and you barely push it, and it goes all the way across the floor with no, with no ener uh, energy behind it. That's what you want. You want a car that with just a little bit of help, just a little sniff of, of a draft. It has what we call really long legs, right? It runs way out there like a sprinter. It goes a long, long time. And, uh, and that's the idea. None of that guarantees anything. All that is is a little more ammunition because, listen, when it comes down to the closing laps, even more than that, say 30 to go, how it works is there are 20 cars that could win the Daytona 500 with 20 to go, and they slowly are eliminated for whatever reason. Paul Menard was eliminated with a simple mistake he got took in the middle. It was that simple. If he had blocked the top or the bottom, he would have had a chance. Uh, excuse me, Ryan Blaney. Ryan Blaney had a chance to win that race, um, and he got taken three wide. 
Go back and watch it. It was, was, I don't know, seven to go, eight to go. Dale Jr. did it, uh, 15 or 16. He got taken three wide off turn. You cannot do that. Right. Uh, I'm not saying I could. My job is to analyze, and my analysis is that Ryan Blaney lost the chance to win the Daytona 500 with that singular mistake. There were four guys who basically lost moves with mistakes in the last time. Blaney, Kurt Busch, Denny Hamlin, Eric Almirola. And you didn't even mention Joey Logano, who and, made his mistake right. coming to the green flag pit stop. So, so my point is, you start with 40 cars. A few crash, a few this, a few that. Now you've, you've put yourself in a spot. 25 to go for the great American race, the 60th running. You're going to get the coolest trophy, the best ring, and you'll be a Daytona 500 champion forever. And as that pressure builds, mistakes are made. And as mistakes are made, they eliminate drivers. Some poor drivers get caught up in somebody else's mistake. That's still part of it. And as you start with your list of drivers, it's just like a rundown. Start checking them off the list. And in the end, it came down to a green-white checkered restart mm-hmm. with six to eight drivers that had a legitimate chance. If you said, who are you going to bet on? If anyone tells me they weren't betting on Denny Hamlin starting on the <laughs> right. front row, I call them a liar. Right. I do, too. Absolutely. I would have took Joey Logano in seventh or eighth before I took any of the other ones in the top right. five. Right. And I hope Austin's listening. I hope this fires him up. But I didn't believe he could win it. I didn't believe Bubba Wallace could win it. I didn't believe anyone inside that top five other than Denny Hamlin had a chance to win it because of Denny's speed, because of his um, aggressiveness at the restricted place, because of his resume. But I was wrong. Uh, Eric Almirola had a chance. The two big blocks got taken out by a hard-charging three-car with Austin Dillon, and he became the victor. Let's talk about that because you said mistakes were made by some of those other guys, and you and Kyle were just talking outside here that maybe some mistakes were made by Almirola entering that last corner and that he might have thrown one block too many. So hindsight's twenty twenty. You, without a doubt, have to make a block. No problem with that. Eric decided to throw a second block. So he threw a second block and got wrecked. So it's easy to say, shouldn't have done the second block. Well, the other response is he doesn't make a second block, and the three drives by him on the outside. Well, now you're like, well, what the hell? You just lost the Daytona 500. Didn't even turn right. Didn't even try. The third is you take the second block, and the three doesn't wreck you, and you win the Daytona 500. You know, it's easy for a non-driver like myself to say, you know, you block low, you had the top, you left it open. Maybe you should have drag raced your way back to the line. You know, I don't know. I'm Like I said, I'm not a race car driver. I didn't have a problem with Eric's moves, and I didn't have a problem with Austin's. And I know the fans don't want to hear that yeah. because in today's world of 2018, someone has to be at fault. And I tell all those same fans that want somebody to be at fault, you're the same ones that tweet me and say racing isn't good anymore and they're not like it used to be. Yet someone basically ran someone over. I don't think he wrecked them on – I don't think he hit him saying, I'm going to wreck them. Mm-hmm. I think he hit him saying, look, pick a lane, dude, I'm coming through. Mm-hmm. And the hit turned into a wreck. What I saw tumbling down the backstretch of the Daytona National Speedway coming to the checkered flag – of the 60th running of the biggest race of the year were a handful of determined drivers that felt that that was a career-defining moment, and it was. And fortunately, I think it was only career-defining for the guy that won it. My point being, I don't think that move Eric made is going to define his career. I don't think the, you know, Denny not winning is going to define his career. And, and, you know, all these people that say, oh, Austin shouldn't have hit him and should have this and should have that, I challenge. Tell me how Dale Sr. won. Tell me how Jeff Gordon won multiple times. Tell me how Ryan Newman won. I can list all the winners if you want. Joey Logano, we can go through the list. Pearson, Petty, Waltrip, Jimmy. I can't tell you how they won. Denny Hamlin. All I know is they won. Yeah. They have the ring. They have the jacket. Their name's on the list. So right now, a couple days after the 500, everybody will be fired up at Austin Dillon. But I will tell you that for the next, for decades upon decades upon decades, he'll be introduced as a Daytona 500 champion. It doesn't matter how he did it. That's his title. Should the rules be any different? for taking somebody out on the last lap for a victory on a short track versus 210 miles an hour? I don't think ever. 
Ever. So I think the sanctioning body should allow the competitors to determine how positions are raced. Now, one key word of that is positions. So when you're a lap down, if you go back to Matt Kenseth, Joey Logano at Martinsville, that was retaliation. They were not racing. They didn't hit each other. They, like That was Matt waiting and hooking Joey, and they all wrecked. People, I know there's a lot of water under the bridge. The simple fact is, if I look at that instance by itself, Matt Kenseth was not racing Joey Logano. I have not been pleased with some of the finishes I have seen, uh, namely the truck series. I've seen some guys run over for a win. I don't like that. But it's not my job or NASCAR's job to tell these drivers how they want to race. It would be different if they didn't race each other every week. But they do. And eventually that, that works itself out in the wash. So I feel that certain things, you know, I'm not a fan of rules. I don't like rules. I definitely don't like rules that are subjectivity. I know it's hard to believe, and, and NBC will yell at me, but I don't like Olympic events that get voted on. I like Olympic events that are measured by speed. Objective versus subjective. I do not like yeah. subjective. Yeah. I just don't like it because I believe the judges, and I believe that guy deserved the gold medal, but I'm not smart enough to know why. I have to be right. told. We're a man right. of stopwatch. I don't have to be told. You put them numbers up there. I guess it's because I was raised as a crew chief, right? I just want to know numbers. So I like rules that are black and white. And when you start talking about how hard did the guy hit him? Listen, let the drivers work that out. And, and if they work that out over Twitter or a fist fight in the trioval or screaming at each other or by wrecking each other the next time they're racing each other, hey, listen, let the drivers be themselves. Isn't that what everybody wants? I'm a big fan of it. And in letting the drivers work it out, the way drivers view the racing at Daytona now is markedly different from 10 years ago, I think. Dustin Long and I were talking about this in our last podcast here, Steve, that go back to 2006, 2007, the slam drafting era when you had Tony Stewart out there saying, we're going to kill somebody. we got to change this. A lot. He was not the only veteran who was very uncomfortable. Now, Chase Elliott wrecks. He gets out of his car. That's racing. Keselowski, who got caught up in that wreck by Chase Elliott throwing the block. That's racing. Almarola, not even the slightest bit upset at Austin Dillon for wrecking him. I would have done the same thing. That's racing. Is, is there a, like a generational shift here where blocking has become like more accepted by these guys because maybe it's that's how they have to race under this rules package at Daytona? Well, so it's not just this rules package. We need to go back decades. So drafting when I grew up, the Daytona 500 would have three or four cars in a pack, three or four cars in a pack, three or four cars in a pack. There was no side-by-side. I mean, like I know everybody wants to go back in the day. I challenge you to go find the back in the day you want to go back to. <laughs> because when I watched... Um, let's talk about iconic finishes. When Dale Jarrett was called by his father to win the Daytona 500, there was not a car in the top five side by side. When Michael Waltrip won the closing laps of the 2001 Daytona 500, the only two cars side by side were Dale Sr. and Sterling Marlin, and there was an accident. That was drafting. When Dale Jr. won all of those races at Talladega in that red Budweiser number eight, they were single-file passes between him and Jeff Gordon. Th- that was drafting. There was this shift where it started probably with the wicker bill where they would run two and three wide, and, and it's just never really gone back since then. And I just think that the drivers that you mentioned that are okay with it have only run in that era. So, so I only ever hear big complaints out of athletes during the transition. Once the transition is complete, and what I consider the transition is people that know both ways. So this is a funny story. We go to the Super Bowl. We're walking through a little hospitality area, and my daughter looks over. She's 12. And she goes, Dad, what is that? I'm looking. What? That thing right there, the silver thing. I was like, huh, that's a pay, pay phone. phone. 
She goes, what is that? And I said, well, you go over there and make a phone call. She goes, why don't you just use a cell phone? And we had to have our 10-minute dissertation about how, remember when you were at school and you didn't want to even spend the money, so you'd do a collect call and be like, mom, come get me. And she would turn down the call and come and get you, yeah. right? Like, like that's the era that you and I grew up in, right? My right. kids will never, they, they don't yeah. know that. They don't know a world without email. Race cards. Oh, yeah. no email. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 So these race car drivers only know what they have raced in. Go ahead and fire off the, the average age of those top eight coming to the line. They are young, young, young drivers. They only know what they've raced in. So I'm of the opinion that I don't break the news. I don't create the news. I analyze the news. Well, the news was what you just said, that I didn't hear one guy. You know the only guy that said blocks maybe a little too early? Jimmy Jones. Oh, yeah. Who would remember what it was like Ooh, to race? And the opposite. Right around then. And, yeah. and to defend yeah. Jimmy, had just wrecked a third car in a week yeah. at Daytona. You know, so it wasn't the thing. Yeah. But, right, so so I'm, I, maybe I'm missing one, but the one no, you're that right. clears out you're right. is the most veteran driver. Now, that doesn't mean he's right or wrong, and, and Jimmy will text me, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell him, well, you know, you did sound kind of like the old guy, and everybody will laugh. But I understand what he's saying, and I don't disagree with him. It was yeah. a little bit aggressive early that took out a lot of cars. I get that. But I think these young guys are just like, you know what, that's how we're going to race all yeah. day. And to put it in historical perspective, what Steve's saying about the Wicker Bills, that was in 2000. That was in response to a dreadfully boring 2000 Daytona 500 that a lot of people complained about, including Dale Earnhardt himself. And NASCAR changed the rules in a way that allowed bigger holes in the air, better drafting. As Steve said, it went away from the single file stuff that we've seen. And well, that, well, it flipped, right? So let's be honest. When we go to the downforce track, the trailing car will always be at a disadvantage because he doesn't have as much downforce. It got to a point in those speedways where that was still the case, Yeah. where the leader was so dominant that there was never going to be a pass in the closing laps. And the whole thing about Daytona was the slingshot. You right. want to be guy in second. And Technology ruins everything. It changed everything. So Jimmy Johnson certainly would remember that era, having been around back then. But, again, it's, it's changed the game the of points, Daytona. Here's the problem. It's not single fold. You used to race 36 races for a championship. You don't anymore. You race 26 to make the playoffs. Like, right. like it's more than that. There are now points I've ordered in the state. Like, the bucket, the, if you take a bucket and said, how do we get where we are? And every idea you threw a quarter in there, there'd be hundreds of bucks in that thing, and you wouldn't be able to pick it up because it's not just one situation. That's why it's so hard to untangle. Well, it certainly has led to great racing at Daytona. Three straight last lap changes for the lead. And it's also resulted... In some, as you mentioned, Steve, I mean, you would have picked Denny Hamlin in first or eighth Joey Logano on that final restart. There are a lot of unfamiliar names that are in the hunt here toward the end of these races. I know you've been doing a lot more fantasy oh, work. Oh, my fantasy team got shot all the crap. <laughs> I want to hear your thoughts on how do you, okay, how do, you so do look, this with a plate race now? I had Joey Logano, Brad Keselowski, Ryan Blaney, Denny Hamlin. I had Clint Boyer in my garage, and it wasn't good. I was doing all right, and then Brad crashed. Oh, and I had Ricky Stenhouse Jr., so Brad crashed before the end of stage two. So that allowed me to put him in my garage, and I brought out Clint Boyer, who, mind you, I put a guy in who was already down a cylinder. So that's never a good move for the fantasy <laughs> team. You know, Joey kept going laps down and somehow recovered, which saved me some points. But you, you, you have to – it's refreshing. And here's why I'm going to say it's refreshing. Because after the fifth downforce race this year, someone's going to hear the same name, and I don't know who it is yet, but somebody's going to catch fire. And they're going to be like, oh, this is so boring. I hear Martin Truex Jr., he wins every week. And I will say, well, let's go back to February and rewind the Daytona 500 because that's kind of what it feels like is, you know, people want their big drivers up there, but they don't want the same guy every week. Well, you know, I was really happy with what Daytona brought for a package. I thought that rules package worked really well on learning fantasy racing. I didn't do awful. I don't know. There's maybe 2,000 people in this league I'm in, and I'm like 130th. 
So that's not bad. That's not like bad for Daytona because I think that's my yeah. biggest weakness is the speedways. So I challenge people to bring it on because I think we get in the downforce tracks, I'm going to be better. So people should pick the unknowns, though, for the plate races, you think? If, I, if I, think um, I think you need to be willing to accept that rarely do you see the five biggest names with the five best cars get to the finish. The wrecks used to happen in the middle of the pack. Now they seem to happen at the front. But there were some periods of relative tameness during that race Sunday. We saw some single file racing, and uh, you think that was, uh, again, it's a, not a, a rule. Everybody doesn't That's like the rules. rules. Yeah. Um, and I want you to go back and rewind every race at single file in the last three or four years and tell me there's not either a combination of two or three teammates leading the pack or one or two teammates and a outlier. And what I'll call as an outlier is someone that's done a very nice job, and I don't want to discount what they did to get to that spot, but they're not the name or the car that's going to pull out a line and take the lead. Because what happens is the leader can't just run the top if the guy in second wants to go by because he'll run the bottom. So now once he knows, he can just drag the guy in second to the top. Now the guy in second needs a little bit of commitment from the guy in third. Once they have that, they don't care about the guy in fourth. And they drag it to the top. And when they drag it to the top, the overall speed goes up where everyone has to get in line. So I really believe that that is something that starts at the front of the field. And now it's happened so often that the guy in 6th, 7th, 8th, 10th, 12th, it's kind of like musical chairs, mm-hmm. and they know that there's not a chair for everyone at the wall, so you get up there and get in your chair quick because two or three guys aren't going to get up there, and they're going to go all the way to the back. We're going to be putting all this in our rearview mirror here in a minute. There's no more terrifying week for a crew chief after all the prep for Daytona. To well, so here it right happens for, for two reasons. Season. Okay, so Daytona is its own animal, so it's plate racing. But let's also talk about the crews, right? So you, all, you had some turnover. You found a couple more mechanics this year with the limited crew members. You've reorganized your team. You went to Daytona, and everything moved <laughs> like this. You had days to prepare for practice, days to get ready to race. You probably didn't even practice Saturday. You had a whole day to get ready for the Daytona 500. Now you're going to show up in Atlanta. You're going to unload, practice, qualify, practice, practice, race. And you're scared to death. You get all those young guys together and you say, look, it's not like Daytona. Don't show up relaxed. You know, hey, you had 10 hours to race prep. In Atlanta, we only have four. We can't have something fall off. Everything, a driver, Listen, I, I can't have two days before you give me the information. Like, I got to have it as soon as you come in. And because while every minute of effort that goes into trying to win the Great American Race is, is validated by someone winning it, there are 32 non restrict plate races, and they start at Atlanta. And if you aren't good, there's no pit strategy that's going to save you at Atlanta. Tires wear out. Every caution, you're going to put tires on it. All that preparation with your pit crew. When did we see everyone take four tires of Daytona? Never. Two tires, gas only, right? So my point is, Atlanta's the perfect spot because you're going to line up mano a mano, and they drop the green, and you're going to run like as fast as you can go to the next caution, and your pick is going to have to be as best as it can be, then you're going to line up and do it again. And you're going to do this all day long. And if you have a weakness, it will glow like an orange cone. It, it will show up, and the cars that don't have weaknesses will beat you to a pulp. Because there will be eight or ten pit stops. Because, oh, yeah, be, least, I mean, now right? there will be times they may not pit only because they're afraid to run out of tires. Mm-hmm. But if, if it's, you know, five laps, you're pitting. Mm-hmm. And you're putting on four tires. So if you have the wrong choreography in your pit stop, it's going to show up 8, 10, 12 times. If your car is not good on new tires, you're going to show up every restart. If it's not good on old tires, every time you're on old tires, you're going to get killed. Like, it's so refreshing to go to Atlanta. It's going to be such a change of pace. Weather's going to be beautiful. The place hopefully will be packed. It should be. The weather's great. And so now, okay, so let's talk. Toyota was great last year. Everybody said maybe they weren't in the rules, right? Wasn't that the rumbling in the garage area? I don't know if it was or wasn't. They seem to be pretty consistent. They all passed tech. So Chevy now has the Camaro. So I would have to imagine they hope that's going to be an improvement. 
So now Fords who don't have a Camaro, I hear from them that, well, NASCAR's inspection is going to get everybody back leveled up. I don't know what the truth is, right? I'm not a crew chief in the garage anymore. But what I do know, though, is the best test to all of these stories will be Sunday in Atlanta. New inspection system this year for NASCAR. All these 17 high-def cameras, projectors, a big tent. Teams seem pretty happy with it at Speed Week so far. And as you said, Steve, I mean, Ford is expecting that this will be somewhat of an equalizer because it's going to scan every part of the car. The tiny parts that weren't caught by the previous template system where apparently Toyota had an edge, maybe Chevy would have an edge this year with the Camaro. Those, theoretically... Are gone. Do you I've think? Ruined, I've, I've killed a lot of good theories at a racetrack. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want you to so kill So I talked to a lot of crew chiefs, <laughs> and anytime NASCAR goes through a shift of how it is to inspect, now it's not new rules, just how we're going to inspect the current rules, there's always some growing pains. And I was shocked. I struggled to find anybody that wanted to point out a glaring growing pain. Everyone said yeah, it was pretty smooth. It showed what we thought could be an issue. It, it, they made us correct them. The repeatability was there. How about one even farther? NASCAR's using really good judgment with the technology. If they say, hey, your right side roof isn't quite right, go fix it, and you fix it, and you come back through, and the left front fender looks a little weird, and they're with you the whole time, we're not worried about that. It only moved 30,000, so let's keep this line moving. You know, intentions, great. I was sh- I thought for sure I was going to have some yeah. great cups of coffee down there, right? <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, that was awful. But I didn't get it. I, I really didn't get it. Yeah. So, um, but this weekend will be the real test. You know, but I don't know. Daytona 500 qualifying is normally a, a little hmm. bit of an area to try to get an advantage. Hmm. So if it worked then, then it, now what will be a big test as we just spoke about a minute ago is the schedule. Remember at Daytona they had days to do it, and Atlanta we're going to do it a couple times over the course of a weekend. But I like it. I will love it when they can start the race and tell us all we're not even going to check them after. That would be beautiful to me because I hate hearing about an inf- issue on Monday or Tuesday. So I don't um, – well, I know that that's not the case yet, but I'm hoping at some point they can, they can with enough confidence say, yep, all of these are legal, let's go race. Limited sample size at Daytona, but you mentioned the smaller pit crews. What did you see so far and you expecting to be different in Atlanta? Um, I saw controlled chaos. <laughs> um, saw something you are glad you're no longer a part of worrying so, about. So <laughs> uh, the ballet of a six-person pit stop was beautiful. Everyone had a job. It, it looked like two gears running together, right? Like, like it went so fast and so smooth, you couldn't even believe it meshed, but it always did, and it ran smooth. What I saw was like a six-tooth gear and a 12-tooth gear trying to run together, and every once in a while it skips a tooth because – they went over pit wall with all the right intentions, but there's so much dependent on timing now. So basically, you go over pit wall, one guy jacks the right side, hangs a tire, another guy drops the jack, runs around, so now two guys are touching the jack. There, there's a lot of opportunity for not a one-second issue, multiple-second issues. So I think that I didn't see a lot of clean four-tire pit stops, so my sample size was down, but I'm really going to be watching in Atlanta because – I think that when we leave Atlanta, we're not going to be talking about aerodynamics or handling race cars. I think we're going to talk about someone figuring out the pit stops and dominating pit road. Who do you expect to be good? So the rumor I hear is that Richard Childress Racing has been spending a lot of time on this, even before, perhaps at the end of last year, trying to get the, the orchestration of it correctly. We'll see if that's true. If you're on the three and you're good at it, then shame on you. You should be hung over from the Daytona 500. You should not be good in Atlanta. <laughs> Um, is that true? Is there really a, a I'm not hung over, but like, it's a busy week. You lose your driver all week. You should celebrate. Not that you should not prepare for Atlanta, yeah. but, um, look, you won the Daytona 500. It's not another race and you shouldn't prepare like it's another race. You shouldn't celebrate it like it's another race. You should take a minute. Um, that is a career defining day for anyone that was on that race team and they should celebrate as such. When you guys ran Phoenix after 
2014. And we ran good somehow. You guys still did all right, yeah. <laughs> I remember coming in from Phoenix that first run, and, and I'm like, hey, man, how to drive? Oh, it's pretty tight. And that's normally when I open my book like a coach, and I have all these little highlighted and all these ideas and all this. I had none of that. I looked at the engineer, and he's like, all right, well, let's come up with a plan. And I was like, oh, yeah, just because you didn't have the time to prepare. But so who's going to be good? I hear children. Like, look, I think that um, the beauty is that change forces change. And I think that it might be two cars within the same organization doing it differently. And one might hit on it, but one won't. So uh, I don't know who's going to be good after Daytona for as far as pit stops go. I didn't see anything that jumped out at me. How about what are you anticipating on the track? This is where the season really begins. Are we expecting a, a, a resumption of what we left off last year with the 78 being class of the field? Everybody's looking at them as soon as the garage opens. Then you got Gibbs, and then you got... So I think that's the fair assessment. Yeah. So I think the 78's class of the field at every mile and a half track. So assume he made what I call standard gains. They didn't get new sheet metal. They didn't get a new make. They didn't do anything. They lost a car number out there. So for whatever reason, so when they show up and unload at Atlanta, they're the bogey. Um, I would compare everybody to them. I'm really looking at this Camaro as a question mark. Um, I think Jimmy Johnson has been below Jimmy Johnson's standard for a long time. They're bouncing off a three-wreck week at Daytona. You go into a track that I consider Kevin Harvick very, very good at. He's driving a Ford. Chase Elliott's driving a Chevrolet. You know, there are names that I want to put in the top five, but I have a big question marks on what kind of equipment they'll be sitting in. 48, you just mentioned it. I mean, they had a really abysmal speed weeks, and it wasn't really Jimmy's fault. He, he got caught in a lot of other things for the most part, but this is a pretty big race for them. I, I mean, as you said, they've had a lot of success at Atlanta. They've won at this track. They are coming off a 2017 that probably the worst season of – Jimmy Johnson and Chad Knauss' career together, and they have a lot to prove. Well, and so let's just look at the dynamics. So Hendrick Motorsports have restructured, reorganized. Right. Um, Dustin and you really documented that on the, the web about how they've organized their shops differently, trying to chase the competitors. Jimmy Johnson is hands down the elder statesman of the group. So no offense to William Byron or Alex Bowman. And I, it's not their driving ability, but they don't have the experience in my mind to come sit down into a meeting and be like, oh, my car does this and this is what it needs to do. And they're going to be looking at Chase and Jimmy going, man, my car does this. Is that correct? Is that what I need? Chase is, is until he breaks through to victory lane, there's always going to be the cloud of victory lane around him. So he needs a win. Jimmy needs a win. I think it's more than just a big year for Jimmy Johnson. I think Hendra Motorsports in general, Doug Ducart left last year. Uh, you know, there's some, been some – I don't want to call it turmoil because I don't think it's turmoil or bad blood or anything like that, but there's been a lot of change. You know, the waters are definitely agitated all the way around the place. They're a little bit more murky than they normally are heading into a February weekend in Atlanta. So, you know, I don't think results are needed, but good results would be refreshing and probably be instant gratification to all the work they've gone through around there. NASCAR is built on feuds. So another thing we're going to keep an eye on is Bubba Wallace. Versus- yeah, and if you don't take me out of the studio, me and you are going to have a feud. Yeah. Y'all heard that, right? Remote. We're going remote on our next podcast. Steve has pretty much just forced me into it, which I'm okay with. I knew that was coming. So the second and third place finishers in the Daytona 500 are also our juiciest feud heading into second race of the year at Atlanta. Bubba Wallace, Denny Hamlin. You know Denny. 
Yeah, in a way I know that, both. That, and, and you know Bubba as well. But you play golf with Denny. And Bubba. And Bubba. I know them all. Are, is, is Bubba part of the group too? No, no, but I've played golf with them some okay. to work on my golf game. I, listen, I um, this sounds silly, but I try very hard to find a reason to spend time with any driver I can away from the track. Doesn't sound silly at all, man. Sounds like a good analyst. Well, what I do, what I do is, is, much like I learned with Dale Jr., you know, I want to build, I don't want to call it a friendship because I'm not friends with all of them, sure. but, but a, a relationship with all of them that when in the heat of the moment – it allows me to give my opinion because I know who they are and allows me to ask what questions need to be asked. So I spend time away. So yeah, Bubba and Denny, two people I thought were friends up until Daytona <laughs> passed. Well, they didn't pass. They ran into each other coming to second place. I guess Denny tried to move Bubba up. Bubba thought it was too aggressive. And then post-race Bubba had comments about Denny and some of the comments he made earlier in the week on the Barstool Sports podcast. And then apparently I didn't see this. Or actually talking to either of them about it, but then it was reported that they were there was pretty an altercation. heated altercation, there was an altercation before in the Bubba Wallace went to the media center. Media center. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how this one. It's kind of been all quiet since then. I'm waiting to hear some something's going to come out of this for sure. Uh, Bubba talked a little bit about it today. We're taping this on Tuesday. I didn't give the impression that things were good. He said he was kind of okay, but they were texting, of course. Denny's still a little bit agitated about the situation. You know, so you know these guys. Can they put it behind themselves? I mean, can they can they settle this because they know each other and are they do they have those personalities? Denny seems to me to have the personality of saying, "I'm just going to let this go." Bubba, I don't know as well, um, and he's got that brash style. I don't style. buy it that way. I think over 500 or 400 miles, they race each other very, very difficult. But there are a lot of opportunities where, for the betterment of both cars, you give and you take. You know, two, two wide restart, firing down into Atlanta, and the guy's on the bumps down on the bottom, and he's bouncing up. And you're like, eh, I'm going to give him an extra lane. And that guy knows you gave him a lane, so he gives you the position off turn two. That's kind of what happens. I don't think either of that will happen with these two. I think one's going to drive the other one right down on the door. And I love it, and I'm excited to watch. And I don't think it's personal – but I think it's a respect thing. And I think, you know, these guys, you asked earlier, like, you know, how should NASCAR referee what happens on the racetrack? They shouldn't. The driver should. You know, it's a little bit of like the schoolyard antics. I'll do this at Regan Smith's expense. So Dale Earnhardt Jr. was my driver. And I went from <laughs> Jeff Gordon to Dale Jr. And I watched how everyone raced around him. Regan Smith was a wonderful fill-in for a few races while Dale Jr. was out with his first concussion issue. And Regan Smith, we were running like in the top six or seven. And we were pulling up to pass Kyle Busch. And when we kind of came through the trial, we had two-thirds of a car on him. And that's like a clear getting into turn one. And we rolled off into turn one, and Kyle Busch put the car right on our door, about sucked us around, and went back by us. And that's not a knock on Kyle or Regan or anybody. But what that was is instantly I learned that they don't all race each other the same. And Kyle Busch knew who was in that 88 car, and he knew it wasn't Dale Jr., and he raced it like it wasn't Dale Jr. If it was Dale Jr., he lets him go. Absolutely. And you know, now I'm talking 20 laps into the 600, like, or the 500. Uh, yeah, this 500, is Cheryl Motor Speedway. Right? Like, like, look, I don't want to make it sound like you let us go for the lead. No, right. no, no, no. But he basically was just like, who's this guy? <laughs> Drove right down our door. That's how drivers work this out over time, right? Like, like, if you are obnoxious, if you make comments that other drivers don't want, if, you, if there's a beef to be had, it doesn't have to be that I'm going to put a bumper to you and everybody's going to see you crash and we're going to talk about it. It can be the sleight of hand little moves that are just like little picks at these people. Like, I'm going to make your life more miserable than I should because I don't like you. I ha We have had a disagreement, whatever it may be. From everything I've read, I don't believe there's a resolution yet to the Denny Hamlin-Bubba Wallace disagreement. But I think it would be great for Bubba Wallace if he's up running next to Denny Hamlin in Atlanta because I think my expectations would be that, that 
they hopefully will take this great run at Daytona, which was a great run for the 43. And, you know, if they could parlay it, what are their expectations going to Atlanta? You know, if they can run inside the top 15, I think I would consider that a successful run where Denny Hamlin and his team, I think, have higher expectations than that. So we'll just have to see as it works out. Certainly bears watching, so keep an well, eye Well, listen, that. and if NASCAR gods have anything to do with this the way it does, surely they'll qualify right next to each other. <laughs> right, isn't that how and it ride, And riding the truck. I'll ride in the for truck. driver intros. Oh, yeah. Of course, yeah. That's preordained. I believe, just kidding, NASCAR. Yes, that feud bears watching, as does the future on-site location of the NASCAR NBC podcast with Steve Wittart. We'll have that information for you soon. If we go somewhere <laughs> that there's not a menu or fans, I'm not talking. It's going to be a pretty boring podcast with just you talking, Nate, me nodding. You should listen to this podcast next week because uh, I'm not going to say his name, but give you a pretty big hint. We'll have a four-time champion who used to work with Steve Wittart on this podcast next Wednesday. What do you got going on? You're going up to Stanford, I think, this weekend. So it's a big week. Daytona's over. I'm not going to Atlanta. I'll be watching uh, my friends at Fox cover that race. Uh, Jeff, Mike, and Daryl, that's always fun. And then I will be in Stanford, Connecticut to kick off NASCAR America. Myself, Jeff Burton, Rick Allen. We figured, why not? Beautiful March weather. Let's go up to Connecticut. So three straight days in studio talking NASCAR, Atlanta, breaking down everything, looking ahead. And then a couple weeks after that, myself and an old washed-up driver that I get to work with next year <laughs> get to go to Stanford, Connecticut. So Dale Jr. and I will be kicking off NASCAR America in two or three weeks together. So yeah. a lot going on. Keep your eye on that. Keep your eye on NBCSports.com NASCAR for all of our coverage. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating or review. My shameful shilling has worked well. We're well over 100 ratings now, so um, please keep doing that. It really helps us spread the word. Tell people that you like it if uh, you can do that as well and encourage them to subscribe. We're also available on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you can download podcasts. You can find this one. And if you have any feedback, send it to me on Twitter at Nate Ryan or send it to Steve Wittart. Like go remote. And <laughs> Yeah, go remote is Steve's only suggestion. Thanks for being here, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast.